But if you get people in a room face to face and ask them what do you genuinely care about, which is their place and their family, you know, everyone wants a clean environment. They want a good place to live in. They want good jobs. They want so respect people and ask them, okay, well, how do we start? Where are the opportunities? Where are the openings? Where are the points that we agree on that we can start working on together? Magic happens. best version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Lillian Spencer and I'm very delighted to be the host of this wonderful conversation here on The Remakers. And I'm so excited to share this next hour with you. We are talking today to Dr. Amanda Cal, and she is a pretty unique and wonderful leader in this space. She grew up in a really small town, kind of went to a one-room, well, one-teacher primary school, which she tells us a little bit about, and then had a rotary exchange trip over to Brazil, which ended up kind of setting her on a new course for her life. And so you're going to get to hear about her story and how she's kind of come to this really unique perspective of the way that she does what she does. So today she is the CEO of an organization called The Next Economy. And her job is to go into particularly regional communities in Australia that are very dependent on coal and fossil fuels for their local economy and actually sit with people from really different um, constituencies or concerns and help them work out together their way forward. And it's an approach that is humble and empowering and really genuine and really effective. So she gets called in um, a lot by heads of industry, by government, by um people who are just scared about their future and don't know what it's going to look like. And um, she's also been in some films. You may have seen her in the 2040 film, which was excellently done by Damon Gamow, um, who also produced that sugar film. So I highly recommend both those if you haven't seen them. She was um, called in to be on Fight for Planet A because she's this expert with lived experience and her ear to the ground who can talk about what this actually looks like in practice, not as just some highfalutin idea that we can have a better economy that works better for people and planet. So I hope that you just take away some really beautiful and useful things from this conversation today. I think that she is really grounded and practical as well as just really inspiring and brilliant. And without any further ado, here's over to Amanda. Welcome, Dr. Amanda Kyle, to The Remakers. It is such a delight to be looking at your wonderful face. And I, I almost feel sorry for people who can only hear us on audio right now. And, you know, it feels like the kind of conversation you just want everyone to pull up a chair and grab a cuppa or a glass of wine and come join us for. Um, so, but thank you so much for agreeing to be here today and to come talk to us about all the wonderful work that you're doing. Oh, thanks, Lily. This is such a great idea, this podcast. So I feel very honored to be chatting with you today. 
Thank you. And you've been such a key supporter of Australia Remade really from the start. And I feel like we've borrowed your brain so many times (laughs) on so many things because you're one of these people that is solutions focused and really in touch with like what's happening on the ground. And, you know, you're just out there doing things in your world and in your way. And you kind of just want the whole world to know about you. And people do, like you get pulled on to, you know, movies like 2040 or the television series Fight for Planet A to be this advisor. Um, but look, before we get into kind of your expertise and your core expertise about how do we actually build the economy that we want, you know, the economy that's good for people and planet, how are people doing this on the ground? I'd really love to just start with like a bit of a an introduction to you and a bit of an overview. I've given our listeners a little bit of background on your story, but could you talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the forces that you think shaped you and like where you grew up, how you grew up and kind of how you came to to be doing this sort of work? Yeah, there's, there's probably a couple of different streams that have come together over the years. I guess the first thing is that I grew up in regional Queensland. Um, so for most of primary school, I went to a one-teacher school um, in a little community called Boynewood, which was about 200 kilometres away from the nearest supermarket. So it was a farming community um, where people really relied on each other. I'm not romanticising that. There's problems living in small communities and it can be very claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. But I had a lived experience of we had to grow our own veggies. Um, we bought milk from the local the dairy down the road. If somebody killed a beast, as they called it, like the meat was was divvied up and, you know, people had to look out for each other. So I guess I had a sense of community that was normalised um, and then we moved to North Queensland when I was in high school. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be sponsored by the Rotary Club to go to Brazil as an exchange student when I was 17. Now, my family didn't have any money at the time to send me, but people pitched in and supported me to do that. And I went to live with a family over there that had never met a foreigner before. This was back in 1994. I didn't speak a word of Portuguese. They didn't speak a word of English. They were coming out of military dictatorship, so the economy was just oh, starting man. to open up. Um, and so, you know, it, that was a huge cultural experience. But the, the turning point really came, I guess, for me one day when I was walking down the street. I'd been in Brazil about four months and I was walking past a woman with small children and she was begging. And my host family had been telling me that, you know, you don't give to beggars. That just, you know, encourages begging. So just walk past, you know. So in my head I'm like, okay, don't look at her, just keep walking. I'm this very idealistic 17-year-old who never really encountered (laughs) that kind of poverty before. And then I took a couple more steps and there was a dog that had puppies and the dog had mange, so it had no fur. And automatically my heart melted and I was like, I have to get food for this dog. And then I went, I just walked past people and had have been told that I shouldn't give food to them, but it's okay to give food to a dog. And I just burst into tears in the street. And I was, I just, it was just one of those moments where I just couldn't deal with the incongruence of it. I looked up and I was standing outside the main cathedral, the main square, and went, right, these guys should be doing something about this. So I walked into the church, found the priest, and in very bad Portuguese said, I, I want to do something, I've got to do something. And he's like, oh, he said, pointed me in the direction of an, another church up the hill, and he said, they've got a women's group. I think they meet today. You should go and talk to them. So 
I walked into the church, found the next priest who was hearing confession, <laughs> and he was like, I'm like, I'm not here to do confession, I'm here to <laughs> help. And he's like, yeah, 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 well, are you Catholic? And I was like, well, yes, I was raised Catholic. He's like, right, we do confession, and then I'll introduce you to the, the ladies. So, um, And they had a women's group that was made up of women from the poorer part of town, um, and they just wanted to help their neighbours, and they just pulled together what they had to help and they had a sewing group and I knew how to sew so they were like great we need 300 nappies made out of cheesecloth so they sat me down at a sewing machine and <laughs> and I helped out with the soup kitchen every week and and that was it for me I was like well I just wanted to do development work and really work at that level but it was looking back on it now I was so lucky that that was my first example it was just ordinary people just pulling together what they had and doing what they could to help each other um, it wasn't really mainstream development. So, and that, but I went from there. Um, I ended up studying anthropology because that was the nearest thing to development studies at that time that I could do. Um, then went to Brazil. Uh, sorry, went to Sri Lanka as an exchange as a volunteer. Um, worked with an amazing organisation there. Again, very small NGO of people just doing what they could for people in tea plantations. So, yeah, it's just gone from there. And I've just every time. I've just managed to work with the most amazing people who are really grounded, um, really humble and a really different experience of, of change making, I guess, to sometimes what we see now, which seems to be very glamorous and lots of money involved. And Yeah. That's so wonderful. And did you do your PhD in human geography? Have I got that right? And can you tell us what human geography is? Yeah, I kind of joke that it's geography that decided that it needed to deal with people in the 1970s. So it just wasn't the physical landscape. You kind of needed to talk to people because they're the ones that interact with the landscape. Um, so it was really good bringing that sort of anthropology skill set, yeah. which is the idea that you immerse yourself in other people's cultures and ways of doing things to try and understand it from their perspective. Um so geography was just um, really my, my PhD was um, looking at a community-based approach to development that drew on um, traditional economic practices in the Philippines. So we worked with people and said, okay, if you want to start income generating, what have you got that you can work with? So instead of this idea that people had to get money or microfinance from the outside or training from the outside, it was how do you look at and value what you already know how to do and how people already work together as the starting point to start a community-owned business, um, which was very successful. We started four community-owned enterprises that, is, that were still going, the last I heard, 15 years later, which is unheard wow. of. That's amazing. And that seems like it's almost like that that was your approach then from the very beginning was – all right, like how do we turn up and listen and pay attention to who people are and what they want and what they've got? Were you interested, did you see economic development kind of from the beginning of your career as the path through and forward for people to, to sort of address the other broader human rights, equity, gender issues that you cared about? Was that kind of for you a, a real through line? Uh, actually, I wanted to look at health. <laughs> ah. So I was actually really interested in medical anthropology, so how we understand health systems and our bodies from different cultural perspectives and how that shapes people's behaviour. Um, so I worked in Aboriginal health for three years, um, working with injecting drug users and developing the first culturally appropriate materials around bloodborne virus and HIV 
prevention in Australia um, with this amazing group, the Indigenous Health Program. Um, so I actually was thinking that that's what I was going to do in the Philippines, was looking at the intersection between traditional health systems and the, I guess, more biomedical model. Um, but actually what happened was people were interested in livelihood, so interested in income generation. So it's like, well, the whole project is to respond to what local people need, so that's what they were wanting to do, so that's what we did. <laughs> And you've really kind of done this all over the world, right? Like you've done it in Australia, you've done it in different communities in Australia from cities to indigenous to regional Queensland, and you've done it around Southeast Asia or the sort of wider Asia Pacific. Um, I'm just really amazed at, at that kind of um, diversity and breadth of exposure and experience to really sort of different um, subcultures or different groups of people. and. And the kind of person that can turn up with the humility and the expertise in one package to go, yep, I'm here for you. Like, what, you know, what are we going to do now? What do I need to learn now? Do you feel like there have been, what have been the most kind of um, influential things that you feel like you've learned along the way in those really different contexts that have kind of shaped the work that you do now? I think the theme that's come through repeatedly is that it doesn't matter what you think you know. <laughs> It's actually the opposite. As an outsider, you don't know very much. Um, and that's been the theme all the way through. I mean, I was really lucky, I think, with my first, you know, formal development job working in Sri Lanka that um, I was working with former trade unionists who had been exiled from the government and had just come back into the country to set up this NGO to work on the tea plantations where the Tamils um Tamils a bit had been brought up by the British 200 years beforehand, still didn't have any citizenship rights. Um, and so they were organising workers um, to, you know, the plantations had just been privatised, so they'd sacked all the men because they could pay women half. So it was a real rights-based approach to things and politically very sensitive. It was still during the Civil War in 1999. And so my boss, when I arrived, he looked me up and down and said, who are you? You're you're not what I was expecting. It's <laughs> like, what do you mean? He's like, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 22. <laughs> and it's like, 22, what are you going to know? Oh. And I was like, oh. And he's like, oh, but your CV said that you'd worked in a museum. And I was like, well, I'd, I'd volunteered in a museum for a couple of years. And he said, and you've got this degree and you've worked here. And I was like, because I had to work my way through uni. So I did actually have a lot of experience but he'd expected someone 10 years older and he was like, well, this isn't going to work. Right. Well, I'm not letting you out of the office. You're not going into communities. Like, you, like, no, I'm not letting you anywhere near them. And he's like, you're going to work in the office. Now, you know how to speak English and we've got a whole lot of overdue reports. So once you get through them, we'll talk about what you do next. And his whole attitude was, you know, you've got things that I need, but I will, I will decide how we engage on this because I know my community best. Don't think that you can come in here and tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. And it was, so it was a very post-colonial post kind of approach, but it was, but it was brilliant. Um, I went from there to working in Indigenous health at the height of self-determination and health services. And again, working on this project, um, I'd walk into meetings and people would look me up and down and go, you're not a Murray, what are you, what are you doing here? Who employed you? Like and often be the only non-Indigenous person in the room, which was terrifying <laughs> and quite upsetting at first. In the first couple of meetings, I'd, some of them I'd walk out of them in tears, like just feeling very attacked. 
Um, but, you know, the turning point there was in a health service where we were going in to consult because we had this bloodborne virus prevention money. And, you know, again, this health service is like, who gave what? You've got money? To, nobody's injecting in this community. Like this, it was a political decision around that that project. And they're like, why should we talk to you? And <laughs> getting this black back. And this old guy was like, you know, we've got so many problems in this community. What you're talking about is not one of them. You're wasting our time. We've got two people here employed to do the work of eight people and they're working 24-7 and, you know, rah, rah, rah. And I just, I kind of snapped and I, because <laughs> I'd had enough feeling abused and I, I leant back in my chair and I said, you know what, you're right. You know, I totally agree with you. If I could hand you the money, I would, but I can't. I'm here to do this job. Somebody employed me to do it. I'm here because I want to make this useful. So if you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I've had enough. Like I'm going to go somewhere in the world where people want me because I'm sick of being abused. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my God, you're being so culturally inappropriate right now. Stop talking. Stop talking. <laughs> but this guy actually leaned back in his chair and nodded and went, okay, great. Now that we've got that out of the way, we can work together. We can start by being honest about where we're at. And so it's like moments like that around own what you can bring but it's a partnership around working out what's needed and you've got a it's a it's a conversation for both parties yeah. in a in a genuinely respectful and empowered way to figure out okay this is a problem we're trying to figure out how do we work together not someone coming in from the outside with all the answers thinking they know things because that's that's a recipe for trouble yeah absolutely so, I mean, that kind of brings us to what you do today. Can you talk to us a little bit about this organization that you've founded, you're CEO of The Next Economy, what that is, what your sort of mission is, and how you're out there, you know, working in communities um, to achieve it? Yeah. So, Australia is going through this massive change to its energy system. Well, not just its energy system. We're trying to grapple with how do we reduce and absorb emissions across all sectors of the economy. This is massive transformation that we're talking about. And, you know, we hear the messages that we need to change, um, but there's a real disconnect between the discussion about what needs to happen, some sectors where there's some movement happening, and then the communities that are most affected by these changes. And um, back in 2014, um, I was asked to do a presentation up in Mackay um, in northern Queensland, central northern Queensland, because Tim Buckley, who's a financial analyst, was going around to communities doing a presentation about how coal was in structural decline. The coal price had been down for two years. But for the first time, people actually listened to him and went, oh, my God, yes, what happens if coal doesn't come back? Like there are all these, this fear in the community. And so a local group rang me and said, can you come and present alongside of him because they're asking him what to do and he doesn't know. Don't you do this economic development stuff? And I was like, well, I do it in Fiji at the moment. I, like overseas, I don't do it in Australia. And they're like, don't worry about it. No one's going to listen to what you have to say because they're going to think you're a greenie. So just show up and give them something and I was like okay I was like I know, the, I know the basics of community-led economic planning so I'll just talk through some really simple principles and I went back to Brisbane thinking it was a one-off and I just got all these phone calls and emails from counsellors and head of the sugarcane industry and business people who said look we're not greenies but 
you make sense. Like we need to think about the long-term economic repercussions of how things are changing. Can you come back and talk to us about that? So I went back, organised 12 meetings. By the time I got off the plane, I'd had 17 meetings. And by the time I, the end of five days, I'd spoken to 54 people. It just snowballed. And wow. the thing that got me was how scared people were. They just were so fearful. And I I was couldn't get over it because I knew we had the technical solutions. There's, I knew there was yeah. money ready to invest in renewable energy. Um, we still had a government in this country that had policies that worked. So I was just like, why are people freaking out? Like we can manage this. You know, this is 2014, 2015. But I couldn't get the fear that out of my head. And then for the next week, I just kept getting this horrible thought in my head, which was this is what led to Nazi, the rise of the Nazis. Like in Germany in the 20s after the First World War when there was economic hardship. But it that that economic hardship and how that can be used to divide people. And I kept getting that thought and then I thought, don't be ridiculous, you're being a drama queen, like, you know, kept pushing that thought away. And then 10 days later I turned on the news and Reclaim Australia, which was a neo-Nazi group, was holding their first nationwide rallies around Australia and one of the biggest ones was in Mackay and the key, the key speaker at it was the local MP. Whoa. And I stood in front of the television covered in goosebumps and went, not in my country, this can't be happening. And so I was like, that's it, I'm going to work on this. But I thought it was a side project. I thought, oh, I'll give this a couple of years and keep doing the international stuff. And But that's, you know, that was... 18 months or so before, you know, we saw One Nation come back, Trump come into power and just see that we're just seeing that more and more, how the, that sense of insecurity um, has been used to, to really drive a wedge between people and that us and them kind of mentality. Man, I've got goosebumps listening to you and I want to ask you a million follow-up questions, but I guess I'll start with what do you think it was about your approach that allowed people who, as they said, weren't greenies, to hear you and to be open and honest about what they were afraid of rather than just feeling lectured at or judged or, you know, kind of told from on high, well, you know, you must now quit your, you know, the job that you've had your whole life and go find some new way to to make a living or otherwise you're killing the planet. Yeah, I think, well, one thing is, I guess from the presentation, the original presentation I did was I gave people options. I gave some case studies of the states where they were further along in that journey with coal in decline and said, here are some communities that um, I, I gave a story of two communities that were very close to each other in Appalachia, one community where they just ignored the fact that the coal industry was in decline in the region and the sort of neighbouring county that... Um, took it seriously and decided to start diversifying its its economic base. And, I mean, I just Googled it. I didn't really know much about it. <laughs> um, I said, very two case study. This is what happens. I'm going to bring it up. Um, and I said, you know, the print, the difference between these two, two stories is the ones that were proactive. There's some really simple principles here. They worked with what they had. Um, they got people together to plan it. They looked at expanding the range of options so they weren't so reliant on one industry. Like it was pretty common sense type stuff. It wasn't groundbreaking. So I think uh -huh. that was the first thing. It was just like, yeah, how do we bring people together, have a different conversation instead of it's you have to choose, it's this or this. How do we expand uh -huh. the range of options? And the second thing was when I went back, I, I actually interviewed people. I didn't 
go to meet with them to convince them. I actually was like, well, what's going on? What do you need? What do you care about? Um, who Who's doing work on this already? Um, so I think that idea of being open and inviting people in to problem solve with you and listening and respecting that that has value as well and not trying to sell people anything. I really do believe if you bring the right people together, they'll come up with the best possible solution that works in that time and place because we've got yeah. so many solutions. Like we've got the answers. Like we've got, there are so many resources around us. Um, it's the thing that's stopping us is the politics and the fear and the worry that if you put your hand up or you stick your neck out that you're, you're going to cop it. So how do you think that politics is playing out at the moment where you're listening and where you're working with people? How do you think it's shifting? Because we've had these huge disruptive events, of course, the pandemic, but also, I mean, bushfires all over the world, like never before, certainly in our own country. Um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest originally in the US and you know, no one in Seattle has air conditioning. You don't need air conditioning in Seattle. Well, you do now, you know, and these terrifying fires and smoke that's going all over the country, just as we had here in Australia. You know, Greta Thunberg famously said, Mother Nature, well, you know, times are going to change. Change is coming whether you like it or not. And I feel like Mother Nature has now joined this conversation in such an unavoidable way. Um, I'm curious whether you feel like this time of disruption has given us more possibilities or are people just kind of scared and bunkering down even more than before? Uh, it's it's interesting. I think it's probably both, really. I think, you know, when I first started talking to those communities after Mackay and then I started getting other requests to talk to them and it was coming from a very grassroots base, the invitations. I were the converted who were worried about climate mm -hmm. change, but it was really hard to get anyone mainstream or government to listen um and i th i really th the things that have shifted the conversation that i've seen was the 2019 election and seeing how that conflict played out um around the bob brown convoy yeah can you talk about that for anyone who's maybe not in australia and doesn't isn't familiar with that story i wanted to ask you about that and how what you thought uh, so I'll just, yeah, I'll finish. So the, I guess yeah, sure, the one highlight and then I'll come back to that. So um, there was the 2019 federal election. There was, um, and then the the 2020 bushfires um, were another massive turning point. Like I actually had people within gas companies calling me saying, look, this is a confidential conversation, but can we, we're starting to internally talk about the fact that we need to decarbonise ourselves because wow. the government's not forcing us to do this and we can't live with this on our conscience anymore. Tell us how wow. we can start that conversation. Um, and then the next thing then was COVID where people, it was another step again. It wasn't just around climate change. It was this economic system is not built to serve people and there are people who are going to lose out and, what is the government, like questions about what is the government for if they can't help us through this, you know, and seeing that level of state intervention at a time where people were trying to get rid of welfare before that and just so, so I think that <laughs> has turned yeah. the whole economic conversation on its head. But the Bob Brown thing, so um, 
there's been a big fight in Australia for a number of pretty much the last decade around the proposal to build one of the world's next biggest coal mines and open up the Galilee Basin, which is this huge area in sort of northern Queensland, northwest, central west Queensland. Um, and it's been a big focus of the climate movement in Australia is to stop the Adani Carmichael mine from going ahead. Um, and then the protest movement came to a head just before our national election in May 2019. One of the key points around that was um, the politician who set up the Greens Party in Australia led a convoy of people, collected people from Tasmania in the south on this road trip going through all the major cities and collecting more people to converge on this tiny town of Claremont near where the mine was going to be to demonstrate the level of um, opposition to this mine and they joined with the, the First Nations people in the area to have a festival around that. Unfortunately, there were some people in the region who got the jobs and saw this as an attack on them. So more conservative political forces then formed their own posse um, and <laughs> protest against the protesters. Um, so there was a huge fight in the town. And then, unfortunately, it actually led to um, a woman being hurt when a man decided to ride his horse through the anti-Adani protest camp. Um and it just shocked people. I think it really, it shocked people and it, it really blew up this argument that there are people in the city who think they know better than people in the bush. How dare they lecture us? Um, how dare they walk into our community and deny us jobs when we're really struggling? Um, and there was a huge backlash in the election in the whole state, across the whole state of Queensland. Um, I don't think it was just that issue. I don't think it was a protest vote against climate action. I think there was a lot of things in there. There was protest around the fact that regional areas are struggling with so many different things and they do feel abandoned. Services have been ripped out of these communities for over, over 20 years. We've had this neoliberal approach that's been mm. draining the life out of these communities without any investment being put in. Um, there is a sense of a rural um, city divide and being abandoned. So I think, you know, there was all sorts of issues going on. Right. But I think that that moment um, kind of articulated a whole lot of frustration and anger. Um, and so there's huge swings against Labor in particular. If you're enjoying this conversation and want more, you can check out our website, australiaremade.org. Really doesn't matter where you live because this website has some pretty universal themes and stories and a beautiful vision that we wove together from listening to people from all walks of life answer the question, imagine you have woken up in the country of your dreams. What is it like? So I hope there'll be something there that will resonate or inspire you. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, ideas, or feedback, the podcast email is podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks. And so we have in Australia, we're going to have another election. It's not like in the US where we have fixed election dates and everyone starts, you know, everyone's basically always campaigning all the time, but they can set their watch by it and they can count down. Here, the government of the day has a bit of, well, a fair amount of discretion to actually decide when the election will be held. And of course, they try to do it when they think it's going to be the most politically advantageous to them. So 
at the moment it looks like, you know, probably um, next year, but who knows, it could still come later this year. And I'm curious, you know, if there are people listening right now that <laughs> if you were queen for a day and could just give them advice that they would listen to, you know, what do people who are thinking, oh, but, you know, is this all going to play out the same way again? How do we avoid that? How do we avoid creating these this backlash, these divides? How do we avoid entrenching polarization and conflict around something when really we all have the same basic goals in common? Like we want to live in a, you know, a safe and prosperous world where we can feed our families and pass things down to the next generation better than before. I guess what we've been trying to do, and I, I still think it's really powerful, it's become very complicated with COVID, but we still need to get back to old-fashioned face-to-face conversations. Uh, there's so much noise and social media and there's so-called facts and people arguing about stuff. But if you get people in a room face-to-face and ask them what do you genuinely care about, which is their place and their family, you know, everyone wants a clean environment. They want a good place to live in. They want good jobs. They want so if you that's the framing and the starting point for the conversation um, that's place based. And you respect people and ask them, okay, well, how do we start? Where, where are the opportunities? Where are the openings? Where are the points that we agree on that we can start working on together? Magic happens, and I I know this because in April we decided to host a conversation in central Queensland, so the area where the the conflict happened back in 2019, to get people in a room and say things are changing fast in the energy sector. There's a whole lot of risk. There's potentially power stations that are going to close much sooner than anyone expects. Um, The demand for our coal globally is declining and countries are making declarations that they're not going to be importing our coal anymore. Um, But there's also opportunities around producing different things in this region and there's so much renewable energy that's being built. What can we do with that? Now, this is how quickly things have changed. Last year, so back in March 2020, we tried to have the same conversation. We got 20 people in the room of industry and government representatives mostly. This year we had 270 people trying to get in a room for 150 spots and we couldn't have more than that because of covid And we got senior people from across heavy industry, um, like Rio Tinto, the ports, Cement Australia. We had all of the energy generators, fossil fuel and renewable energy people in the room agreeing that we needed to diversify the energy mix. We had the CEO of a um, a company that owns all the coal-fired power stations stand up in front of this audience in central Queensland saying, our business is at risk if we don't diversify into renewable energy and we need to start thinking about how we manage the closure of these plants that are probably going to close on their own early than anyone expects. We had traditional owners participate for two days straight um, with their vision for the region. We had seven unions in the room. We had six government departments. We had environment groups all coming together to say, how are we going to manage this change? And people were positive. They were excited. It was hard work. They, um, but people were courageous and being honest with each other. And that couldn't have happened, I don't think, in any other way. Um, and there was a joy to it because 
people hadn't been able to meet face to face so they were nervous there was a lot of very nervous energy at the beginning of the day <laughs> don't get me wrong it could, have, it could have gone either way yeah and I think we spent the time before the summit we actually rang I think about 70 people and had one-on-one conversations with them beforehand to to listen what's going on in the region what are you concerned about if we had this conversation what do you want to talk about so again listening and feeding that into the design meant that and people expressed a lot of fear a lot of anger a lot of skepticism in those one-on-ones and I thought I really hope they're venting because if they, they turn up with this energy this is going to be like we're going to be on the front page of the, the news for all the wrong reasons but um in the end people showed up and had a really positive conversation it was just getting it out of the system so they could show up so if someone's listening to this in some corner of Australia or the wider world and they're like damn I want to be able to do something like this where do they start? Like, let's say, let's assume for a second that they can't just like ring you and beg you to come to their town and, and do this, which maybe that is something that, you know, will direct everyone to your website to go have a look. But where would you, where do you start if you want to kind of try to facilitate this kind of a courageous conversation about this is our community, what is the future that we want and how do we bring people together across difference to actually nut that out in a positive way? Um, it's a big question because it depends on. I know it's a huge question. Sorry, it's very unfair. Basically, you start with where you're at. So, what you know, what's the issue that you're wanting to talk about, and who are the who are the people who have the most buy-in to that issue? You know, is it a issue for your street or your neighbourhood? And then you know, invite people together. And if it's an initial thing, the more informal, the better. So you know, put a notice up, invite people local the local pub to have a beer or whatever they want to drink on a Thursday night. Um, I want to talk about this. Does anyone else want to join me in that? Um, I think, you know, it's targeting the, the people who are invested in whatever that issue is as a starting point and always starting with what do we care about? And then the next question is, okay, this is what we care about. What do we have with us already in terms of knowledge and skills and resources and networks that we can bring to start figuring out what we can do to take a step, just a step towards that direction. I think the other thing that people sometimes get wrong is they think it has to be this really big thing. But the uh-huh. first step is just it's really important if it's simple and easy and achievable to invite people to come with you on because that builds confidence and it builds the relationships and the trust in the group. And then once you've had that win, you can take the next step. Um, and there's some really great examples of, of you know, where groups have just, like, you know, one group in Gloucester, I'm sure you're talking to the um, Gloucester group, where they started a community energy project um, just by putting solar panels on the neighbourhood centre. And then they did a slightly bigger rooftop solar project. Five years later now they've got a $2 million solar farm that they're building. So, so cool. And this is a regional town in New South Wales, yeah. Tiny town where people had been inspired by a group of women who brought everyone together to go what do we care about in this place? How do we have a sustainable future that works for everyone in this town that we can move forward on? Um, so, yeah. I love that. Um, I, I was going to ask you, you know, for, for examples, and then you just gave us a beautiful one. I mean, I must admit, I, like, I think everyone gets daunted by the desire to want to do it all perfectly and to see the scale of things that are so big and compounding and intersecting and, and Australia Remade, we talk about a sort of both and or a yes and approach to justice and transformation that you can be trying to stop 
the bad thing from happening while at the same time keeping your, you know, your sights high on the horizon about what is the future that we're excited to build. But I think the danger is that we just get paralyzed. Like we're just so afraid to put a foot forward because we're going to put a foot wrong that we just kind of stay quiet and hope that someone else is taking care of it. And then, you know, or, or we complain about our politicians and, you know, the lack of leadership or the lack of vision. And they're complaining that they can only do as much as the people are giving them permission to do. Like everyone's kind of waiting for somebody else to make that move and go out on a limb and be a bit courageous. And I love that the stories that you're sharing are really about people in very kind of everyday ways, like getting together and starting with what they have rather than feeling like they've got to bring experts in to tell them what to do to, or reinvent themselves from the inside out or whatever. I guess the other thing is I sometimes think we fall into that. The nice stories about community, like people who it's not their job to do that. But the other, the other flip side of that is starting with where you're at is also some of the conversations I have with very senior managers within very large companies who also reach out and say I think I'm the only one who cares about this but we you know they can see a risk for their business on the horizon Um, so sometimes it's also working with people around whatever their power and influence is it doesn't matter whether your influence is in your household or your influence is you're an elected official and you think if you speak out you're going to get, um, you know, attacked, you know, it, then the strategy is, well, what can you do? What step can you take? How do we build support around you um, to protect you from any kind of pushback? Um, mm. If you're a business manager, you know, what are the things that you can do to start doing that? You can't change the whole business, but what do you have control over? Oh, you have control over procurement. Do you have a local procurement policy? Um, did you know that there's a, a list of First Nations businesses that you can draw on? You know, so it's, again, I think it's, we often think it has to be something big and out there, but everyone can start building that world where they're at. at and um, we forget that all the time. Yeah, we think of ourselves as individuals and we think, what can I do as an individual? It's all too big. And it's like, we can stop thinking of ourselves as individuals was an answer that David Ritter gave me on a previous conversation not too long ago. Um, I'm curious about what, like, what is your go-to story or example or motivation or what's giving you hope right now? Like when you wake up on one of those days, you're like, oh God, (laughs) you know, things are just, it's all too much. And I want to go back to bed now. What, what is, what is there for you that you're like, yeah, but actually Things, things are moving fast and things are getting better. And is there a favorite kind of go-to thing that you go back to or is it just what's happening in the world, and you know, more at large? I'm really lucky that I've gotten to work with so many amazing people. Um, so I've got lots of stories I can draw on. I guess the one for me is, yeah, the one I go back to the most is the story of these women we worked with in the Philippines around that project I did my PhD on. Um, They're a group of grandmothers who lived in a village that was about seven kilometres up a mountain from the town. They did backyard gardening and they used to sell their ginger in the local market. But the government had changed the trading laws and so the the market had been flooded with all this Vietnamese ginger. So the traditional ginger, which was very spicy and different, they just couldn't sell anywhere. And we were working with them. They wanted to start some sort of community enterprise And one of the things that identified was they knew how to make this ginger tea 
that was a traditional healing tea. Um, some of them would just sell it to their neighbours and they thought maybe there was a market for it. And so we're like, great, well, you know, how are you going to, how you know, what's the first step? And they're like, oh, we need to figure out if anyone will buy it. Great, how are you going to do that? Oh, we could ask people in the market. So we'd agreed that they would go to the market and do this little market survey, these two women out of the group. And every week we'd ask them, how did you go? And they're like, oh, no, we didn't go. And we're like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, it's too scary. Like we're too afraid. We're too embarrassed to go by ourselves. And then somebody said, well, if it was a social outing, if we could all go together. And I was like, well, great. What if we just gave you the bus fare? Like we had no funding to fund the enterprise, but we're like, I can give you them. Like it's like $8 Australian or something like that. So they caught the, the jeepney, the bus, the transport down into the town and they started asking people, would you buy this ginger tea? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we can't get that. We can't get ginger tea. If we get it, it's terrible quality. It's from the other town over there. But if you make it with Hagna ginger, like that would be really good. We'd buy it off you immediately. And the women got so excited, they used the return bus fare to buy sugar at the market. They walked seven kilometers back up the mountain, walked into someone's kitchen, made their first batch of ginger tea, walked back to the market a couple of days later, sold that. And a few years later, they were employing 65 people off that initial investment of about eight Australian dollars. Wow. So that's, you know, and they were women. And the beautiful thing about it was they were grandmothers, they had childcare responsibilities, they were subsistence farmers, and they decided they loved their life and their traditional life and they wanted to share. They didn't want full-time employment. They didn't want to do the standard business model. So they Mm -hmm. tapped into traditional systems around um, farming systems, around how you get harvesting done, community obligations around needing to give back to the community. So they set up a community fund um, and didn't didn't pay themselves for the first six months. Um, then they made sure that they used the traditional harvesting system to make sure that other people could work and be remunerated for that. So they stayed part-time. So the logic, even though it ended up looking like a standard business, the logic of how it was done, um, they also got the community to... The community decided to give them the use of the community hall and then pledged that they would buy their first couple of batches of ginger tea to support it. So that community obligation, that traditional um, traditional systems that actually had seen a lot of microfinance programs fail because it was based on an individual household finance model, by actually tapping into the community logic, it created a whole lot of support around them that enabled them to not just thrive but create benefits for the whole community. And it was just women who were pretty much illiterate um, and had no confidence taking that on. And so I'm like, that's my, that's the story. It's like amazing things can happen when people are just stepped through a process and um, work with what they've got. Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, and I think it goes to why for me you are someone that talks about the economy in a way that I like. Like usually when you hear an expert talk about the economy, your eyes glaze over, you just, you, you know, it's like you're ready to like flick the channel on the remote. Um, it just, it feels like it's language that is designed to put us to sleep or kind of push us out of the conversation. Whereas whenever I've heard you talk about the economy, you're like, how do we live? Like, how do we do the things that we need to do to survive? Like some of it, we might be getting paid for, but a lot of it we probably aren't. Like you just kind of, it's very grounded and very real. And 
And so I believe you when you tell me that the next economy is possible. Whereas sometimes when it sounds highfalutin, like we're going to build an economy that's good for people and planets, like it sounds good, but can we really do that? What does that actually look like? Um, because the economy has been kind of talked to us about as this kind of thing out there in the ether that we better not upset and that we probably don't understand. And, you know, it's this machine or it's these gods to appease, or we don't even know what it is. We just know that like, you know, keep your head down and, and don't piss it off basically. So talk to us more about that next economy that you're working for. Like, cause I know you work with people who are really like on some really interesting radical fringes of like reinventing the whole concept of like what this even could be. Like, do you have a favorite next economy vision in your head of like what we could actually be creating? Yeah, so the, I guess the the first thing that comes up for me is that we just need to think about the economy differently. It's just how we produce things. It's how we exchange them, like how we access the goods and services we need. It's how we organise and remunerate or reward work, labour, and um, it's who decides how we use the resources that we have, the inputs and also the outputs of that, you know, and do we see it as waste or do we see it as another resource? Um, who controls that? And it's how we make decisions about any surplus or profits that come out of that. So it's just the decisions that we make around these things. That is the economy. So if that's your starting point, we've got lots of different ways that we do things. We have capitalist ways of doing things and we do. So we could buy goods and services and exchange that for money. People give their wage, their labour for a wage, that kind of thing. But if you actually look at even, you know, supposedly a very capitalist society like Australia, there's lots of other ways that we get what we need. We still have, you know, um, government-owned corporations. We still have cooperatives. We have uh, um, people bartering and, and swapping things from, you know, veggies over the back fence to more formalised systems of um, swap swap shops and, you know, and meets where people exchange things. Um the volunteering sec the volunteer sector is worth billions to the Australian economy. Like this is not, not cute little side things. These are actually integrated into our system. And part of the problem is we're told to just see the money part, the capitalist system, as the only thing that's there, when really we need to be counting all of the things that are happening, including unpaid labour, and having real conversations about how that can enable, like that expands our options about how we get things done. Also, really honest conversations about justice and exploitation and power relationships and why certain things like certain forms of work are rewarded in certain ways and others aren't. So this is the conversation we have at a community level. Like they call us in because they've got an economic challenge. Okay, you've got this challenge. How are you going to address that? Is it food security or energy or whatever? What are the standard ways that we think about doing that? How else can we do it and think about it? Because there's communities all around the world that are doing things differently um, that we can look at and increasingly we're going to need alternative mechanisms to move forward um, because the standard kind of capitalist systems are failing people. Um, that's not an anti-capitalist stance. That's a, just an observation. And we saw that with COVID, like how fragile so many business yeah. models are. Um, so we're going to need to be more creative around that. Um, but in terms of the vision, for me, it's, you know, I we have everything we need to be climate safe. 
um, and to do things in a way that is more socially just from, you know, community energy projects to revitalising local food systems and having food hubs. Um, like a mix of things I think is what I see for the future. What I'm worried about at the moment is as the climate crisis um, becomes more and more obvious to people that we're already seeing some pretty interesting, scary geoengineering solutions that are being pivoted, that sort of put it out there as the only way forward now because it's too late, um, whereas we've got so many other ways that we can live using what we've got that would actually have much better outcomes for everybody, not just some people who can make a whole lot of money out of something that they can monopolise. Do you think that there's been, have we set ourselves up in a, in a sense with decades of messaging out of the environmental movement that's basically reduce, um, stop over-consuming, like wind back the greed, um, buy less, do less, make less money, make less stuff. And then we kind of try to come in over the top of that at election time or when we're trying to, you know, persuade some group of people and say, oh, no, you can have a great prosperous future. The future can be awesome. Don't be afraid. It's not about giving up your lifestyle. And you know, if I were listening to that, I'd be like, I call bullshit. I don't know that I believe you. What is your kind of way through that? Do you... I mean, I know that a lot, I guess you'll probably tell me, you know, that a lot of it is listening to like what people actually want, but do you see a way forward for us where we can have a kind of, as you were saying, like a mixed bag of still doing certain things in this capitalist way? Do you think that we need to radically kind of change how we're living? Can we just make these changes for the better? Like, do we need to grow up a little bit and kind of suck up a little bit of pain as part of this kind of reckoning that we're having with the planet? Or do you think that we can really chart a path forward that everyone will be better off? I think change is happening. I don't think we can. Yeah. It's not about choosing to change. Like, the, the, the <laughs> we're, already, we're in the middle of it. Like, the climate, severe climate impacts, particularly in the state that I live in, um, severe weather events from cyclones to fires to, you know, unpredictability of the seasons, uh, we're already feeling the impacts. Um, the question is whether or not we manage that in a way that brings everybody through to the other side or not, or whether we see a disaster capitalism scenario that Naomi Klein talks about and that these disasters are actually used to consolidate wealth and power. Mm -hmm. So it's going to happen. It is happening. Um, we've got some really tough choices to make. If we wait too long to have those conversations and to embed them in policy um, and systems, then it's going to be harder as more people feel like they're losing out. I still think we have time that most people in Australia, people take, but, you know, the majority compared to most of the world, people are pretty comfortable. There's That can be then difficult because I think everything will be fine. We'll go back to normal. There is no normal anymore to go back to, but we still have some cushioning and some comfort where people can still take some risk. We've still got some resources there. Um, we can demonstrate that things can be different. Um, and, again, I go back to that example in the Philippines. It's like when people who have so little can take a risk and try something different and be successful, why can't we in this country where we have so much um, and we have at our fingertips, ready to go. How do we get people over that that hump? What do you think is the biggest barrier to overcome right now in Australia to getting people over that? 
Uh, I hate to say it, but I think it's politics. Um, (laughs) I I just don't understand. I don't understand some of I meet with senior level people within state and federal government that they'll have a conversation behind closed doors where they know what they need to do and they're still saying, but politically right now we're just going to wait and see or we don't think that's going to win with people. It really frustrates me. And so you see openings so, like we saw in central Queensland where we got these people in a conservative area talking about the future of energy and the opportunities of moving to renewable energy and what we could produce with that. And then we see, you know, local candidates then come back and say, no, you know, trying to push against the Prime Minister coming out around having a net zero emissions target. And it's it's almost like the more things open up, the more there are certain people who want to shut it down and that really hard edge of politics so we need people everywhere again it comes back to the what can i do if everyone contacted their local mp and said i actually care about this like it shocks me that we i meet with elected officials and they say i know climate change is important i know people care about it and the polls say that but i've never had a letter from any of my constituents saying i care about climate change you need to they'll get letters from groups um, wow but that ordinary citizen engagement we're not even using the systems that we have at our fingertips. Man. All right. Well, you have given us a lot to think about today, as I knew that you would. And um, we're going to kind of start to land the plane a little bit with with a few questions that really, you know, I like to ask our guests um, when, when time allows. These are just some rapid fire ones and your answers can be off the top of your head. It can be big or little. It can be serious or silly. I'm going to start with what is something that is making life better for you right now, today? Raising guide dog puppies. <laughs> Having baby Labradors around the house. (laughs) How many do you have? Well, actually, we're waiting for our next one in September. That will be our fourth that we've had. Wow. That's so satisfying. When the rest of the world is like, I have no control, but with a puppy and you see them grow and learn and hopefully go on to be a guide dog, it's amazing. And is it impossibly heartbreaking to then give them back? That's Yeah, let's not focus on that. What's something that people get wrong about you? Oh, lots of things. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think sometimes some people in the sort of more activist space um, don't think that what we're doing in the way that we're working with communities has power behind it. It's not hard enough. It's not pushy enough. But I think and and think that by doing what we're doing that we're somehow rejecting or attacking what they do. Whereas I don't see it that way at all. We need people to protest. We need the anti-Adani protesters out there. We need people pushing and just holding the line around what is like, what is right and what is wrong because that creates a space, creates the urgency to have a different conversation and that's the bit we step into. And unfortunately those two things don't necessarily go together. Um, It's a different kind of personality. It's a different kind of approach. But we need both. Yeah, we need people to fight that fight and then we need people who can bring people together to move them along. It doesn't make one process wrong or the other one, you know, right or wrong. We need everything. We need everyone. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, is there something you've changed your mind about? Could be recently, could be big, could be little. Change my mind all the time. I'm just trying to find a good example. <laughs> um, yes. Okay, this is a good one. Um 
I've been thinking about this a lot. We're going through a massive growth in the organisation and I've always seen myself as working in, you know, very tiny, like it's okay if it's just a couple, one or two of us and um, we can make a change through the ripple effects and we can just facilitate. We don't have to have a stance on things. We can just bring people together to have that conversation. But realising the power of being really clear and open around this is the kind of world that we, we're working towards and we are inviting people in to have a conversation with really clear standing around what we stand in. It has, it's more honest and it's more powerful because people go, okay, I know where you're at, let's, let's come in. And not being afraid to grow and actually bring a whole lot of new people in um, and we don't have to lose the essence and the soul of the organisation um, by by growing that that community of people. But it's a bit scary. But I've had to change some of my assumptions around how things work. Uh, I totally hear you on that. And I want to ask you lots of follow-up questions, but I'm going to be good. Um, if you were to recommend something for our audience of a book or a podcast or a TV show to go check out, can you think of any recommendations off the top of your head? Yes. Um, a go-to for me, particularly for people who are finding it a bit hard to stay hopeful, um, is Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit is a good one. Um, also, Joanna Massey's work um, I'd highly recommend to people because it's gentle. It's about compassion um, and opening up. Um, you're the second person to recommend Hope in the Dark on the podcast. And I'm reading it. I'm rereading it at the moment. And she's just so good. And even though it was written in kind of like the early 2000s, you know, and it's like George W. Bush and all, it, it, the, but the eternal truths that are there and the way that she expresses herself are so beautiful. And yes, I love, I love both those authors. Thank you for, for that. And then kind of lastly, if people want to find more of you and your work and learn more about it or maybe get involved in support you in some way where should they go uh yep so they can go to the website so it's nexteconomy.com.au um if you're on facebook we've got a facebook page next economy australia um and that's probably the entry porthole portal into youtube videos and all sorts of things Wonderful. Um, Dr. Amanda Kyle, it's been just wonderful to be able to talk to you this afternoon. I feel so lucky to have had this time with you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and perspective and insight with all of us. I think um, you've given a lot of people something to work with and something to feel hopeful and good about, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Lily. <laughs> thanks, guys. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Dr. Amanda Cal, everyone, um, aren't we lucky to have her on the planet doing what she's doing? And I am really hopeful, actually, for um, the changes that she's talking about and the way that people from kind of all facets of the community are now showing that they can actually come together and nut out some pretty big conversations in a really 
um, constructive and exciting way. So uh, if you would like to find her and find more of her work, just have a look on the show notes because I will pop links over to her website and to all of the things that we've mentioned, um, to the films that she's been in and the projects she's been involved in there. So you can go find more of her and kind of be you know inspired by this model to take it up in your own work or to maybe reach out um, to others who are doing similar things because this is it, you know, the change is upon us and it's a pretty exciting time to be alive. All right. Well, thanks everyone again for listening, for all of your um, wonderful comments and feedback on the podcast so far. It has just been such a joy and so surreal to hear from people around Australia and in other corners of the world reaching out to talk about what they're listening to, what it means to them. Um, We just read and appreciate every single review and comment. So thank you so, so much. And I look forward to seeing you next time over on The Remakers. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator in chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.